So welcome to Covenant and Conflict, what I hope will be a theological perspective on the current Middle East crisis. I'm really glad you're here. We try to squeeze you in as much as possible, so I understand that. Um, yeah, I'm a little nervous today, um, but not in a bad way. Um, yeah, I want to begin by just praying for a lots of humility. Can we do that? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, you are so gracious to us. You are the only saving God in the universe. And so thank you that you love all peoples. Thank you for how you chose out of all peoples, Abraham. And through his line, you brought the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that in him, all nations of the earth have been blessed. And that there will be around your throne one day, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so, Lord, understanding more of how you're doing this, why it matters, I pray you'd give us just boatloads of humility today, grace, and illumination, and even in where our differences arise, uh, Lord, give us uh, just spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood in those moments. This we pray in the gracious and good name of Jesus, our Savior. All God's people said with me, amen, amen. Hey, I want you to know up front, I'm, uh, I'm no expert on any of this, all right? Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not a historian. I'm a pastor with theological beliefs. I'm a shepherd who feels a, a delightful weight of leading a certain section of God's people with other shepherds. And so that's what brings me here today. I don't always address cultural things. I did feel a nudge towards this um, through what I refer now to as the small group sabotage. <laughs> Some of you are in this room who did this to me. Those two, I'm looking for the Wilsons, where are they? Over here. So I was asked for a number of weeks what I thought about different things regarding Israel, and I wasn't sure who they meant by that term, so I would ask, and then that would then bring out other questions. And um, So in this small group that was supposed to be a fireside chat, they kept prompting me for what I thought about it. And, and I finally, in a moment of transparency and vulnerability, I said to them, well, I think what you want me to do is to adopt a view that some of you hold, and then you're going to kind of corner me that why I don't hold that view. And they said to me, we don't know what views you're talking about. So I said, oh, really? I said, you, you actually just are curious, like, how do we make sense of some of what's happening? How do you make sense of it? I, and they said, yeah, we actually want to know what you think. So I humbly said, oh, I, I just didn't believe the best about you, sorry. <laughs> I kind of thought you wanted to kind of, uh, you know, see where I was. And then, and so we spent the next about 45 minutes to an hour just talking through different views, but them hearing why I view things the way I do and how it helps me in some areas. Out of that conversation... God just seemed to say it would be helpful if you shared this with the church. I think they encouraged that as well. 
And so um, I want my posture to be, if that's clearly what you want, I'm, I'm in, I'll do it. And I think when I got home that evening, to be frank with that small group, that's what the Lord was saying. So I just said, sure, I'll do it. I'll be happy to. Um, so the next day I just scheduled it. I'm not sure if it's convenient for everyone's time, um, but it really fit with kind of this past year, just having a couple of extra teaching opportunities. One of them is this one called the Sunday Seminar. We taught you how to read Revelation one Sunday. This kind of fits in that. And so I just took that from the Holy Spirit. It's like, this is the right time, the right thing. And so that's why we're here today. It's really um, informational, yes. It's helpful, I hope. But really, it's uh, my response to the Lord to try to be a, a faithful pastor to our sheep. Now, I want you to know there'll be some things you'll hear today you will not agree with. No problem, okay? I may be wrong on some of them. You could be wrong on some of them. Uh, that disagreement is not a sin, okay? We can leave here in very close fellowship. Even if we disagree, and we know we disagree, that will be no problem. So I think we should at least on the, at the outset agree to that. Um, I would challenge you, as you would challenge me, let's just make sure that we are, at the end of the day, falling on the Word and in all honesty, in regards to this issue, we will probably all say we're falling on the word and we're still going to end in some different places. I, I admit that. You'll, have, you'll admit that. Does that make sense? So in that moment when we realize, wow, we just see the word differently, let's be gracious and humble, uh, brotherly and sisterly, and let's consistently approach each other in a spirit of meekness and not in a spirit of debate. That being said, I don't think it's unhealthy uh, for our leaders, in this case myself, to help us with issues and to make sure that whatever framework you're using, it's one that you've thought through and that perhaps has been challenged by another framework. And if you still hold to your previous one with good reasoning and biblical insight, fantastic. Does that make sense? I don't think it's ever unhealthy to be challenged in a meek way. So that's may, that may be what some of you will hear today. Others will just find it helpful and informative. I also know there's a segment of our church who will not have heard of any of this or these views. And you'll think, man, how in the world, did, how, how did this come, become so confusing so suddenly? You may think that for any of those people, just in any group, if you want to talk further, I'm fully open to that. would love to chat with you. Uh, not to prove you wrong or for you to prove me wrong, just to have good, spirited, a Christianly conversation if we need to. So if I'm if I'm in your camp, if we're saying, hey, I'm, I'm down with that, could you just nod at me and say, yeah, we're, we're with that. Because I'm not here to pick a fight or to cause a debate. I want to help our sheep process what's happening around the world in a specific area. And here's why. Because my goal today, and I think I can speak for the elders here. They know that this is happening. They, they've got a little bit of a preview. So I didn't, they signed off on this in one sense, don't worry. They gave me some good fences and some guardrails. Uh, my goal today is expressed in two ways. I'm aiming to help us think and act more missional than cultural and more biblical than political, okay? That's my goals. It's kind of one goal, two ways to state it. More missional than cultural, 
more biblical than political. In fact, I want to do today a little bit of what I think by God's grace we were somewhat able to do during COVID. I think during COVID, we didn't make every step perfectly. I thought we did a better than average job. And I think what helped us was we realized our goal was to stay missional, not medical. And so we just tried the best we could to say, you know, there are other people who can answer those questions. The church has one job to make disciples regardless of what it is outside or how hard it is. That's our job. So let's figure that out first and let the other folks handle the medical stuff. So I see this in that way a little bit. Like there's a lot going on over there. It does affect us. The world's getting smaller. Ethnicities are living closer together for different reasons. So how can we remain in the best position possible thinking theologically as correctly as possible so that we stay as missional as possible. I'll lead us towards this goal in three sections. There'll be a time we'll identify the problem that will happen first. Then we'll provide a prescription. Both of those sections will be pretty scripted. So I'd have written out a good bit of what I intend to share and say. I have a little fluidity in there. But for the most part, in this section, it's going to be, I feel like I'm pretty prepped for this part, these two parts. Then we'll enter to a time where we'll tackle some perplexities. That's where we'll get really fluid. We call that Q&A. So if you want to text a question in, you can. We'll take live questions as well. And that's what this, these mics will be for at a specific place. This is being recorded, so we'll need you to go to the mic and ask your question. But at that point, we will have, you know, kind of back and forth. Um, and I'm willing to kind of tackle that unscripted best I can. So just be aware of that. Three sections. We're going to identify the problem. We're going to provide a prescription. And then we're going to tackle some perplexities. The prescription part will be where we give an answer. And then I want to show you how I arrive at those answers. That's where we'll probably have our most disagreement so it seems natural to follow that part with, per, with our perplexity section, okay? Great. Hope that made sense. Let me see if we can, first of all, identify the problem. You know, what's driving me as a pastor, or even as a Christian, to try to address things from the Middle East? Israel, um, the Gaza area these ethnicities from there. Why talk about that in Ankeny, Iowa, the heart of the Midwest, right? So here's what I'm realizing. You may agree with this. You may not. I tend to think the current Middle East crisis can cause, and I think it has caused, I would have a few anecdotal references to share with you. I won't for sake of time, but I, I think I could either for sure informally prove to you that this crisis is unintentionally and unnecessarily causing some division in some various places, whether it be in some churches, maybe in some small groups, or maybe some families, or among even Christian friends. My hope is that it doesn't cause division here, because the division seems to be having an, a missional effect. We, we are forgetting that the very people groups involved in the struggle are also some of the people groups that we interact with at times. Not a lot, granted. It's the Midwest, and it's Iowa, it's Ankeny, 
It's not the most diverse place in the world. But yet you do have representatives, we'll call them, from that area in this metro area. You do. My fear, so to speak, and it's not a worry, sinful fear, but my concern is that if we're not careful, we'll become unintentionally divided through a misuse of language or focus and our missional efforts will be thwarted. We won't be able to effectively make disciples of all nations because by our language and focus, we've unintentionally alienated certain ethnicities. Let me give you some examples. I've mentioned the words language and focus. I think our language in regards to the crisis in the Middle East can get unnecessarily loose. When we don't have to be general, sometimes we are. That may not be because we want to be. It may be we just don't know what to say. So we just say what the media has said. And it's very general, and it can actually not really communicate what our heart is feeling or thinking. I think our focus can get unintentionally narrow. And by that, what I mean is we sometimes unintentionally become very national instead of biblical. Again, that may be unintentional. We may not really know what to say, so we just say, like I said, what the media says, thinking, well, that will work for this person. They've heard that too. And unintentionally, in our language and focus, we sometimes may risk alienation, misinterpretation that we don't have to risk if we just were to narrow in a little bit on what we actually believe. Let me say it to you like this. I think we can be specifically missional in our language and focus, not merely cultural. I think we can be specifically biblical in our language and focus, not merely political. Now, let me give you some examples. Here's some phrases we use that the media uses, not all of them, but some do. You've heard them. And I want to explain to you and show you how I think they can be misused unintentionally. Here's the phrase, God's chosen people. Another phrase, Palestinians are the problem. Another phrase, we stand with Israel. Another phrase, they have a right to the land. So these are general terms that many people use, not everyone, but many use without thinking about what they actually specifically mean to various ethnicities, especially those who have yet to believe in the risen Christ. And what I want to show you is that regardless of your end times position or positions, loose language and general focus, language and focus that's both unnecessarily and unintentionally loose and narrow can actually hurt our missional efforts. It can hurt our outreach. Now, make sure you don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? I'm not saying that some of those phrases shouldn't be used. I'm not saying that. 
I'm suggesting this afternoon that you use some of those phrases with clarity and specificity, with purposefulness and intentionality. And my aim and goal is that, again, regardless of where you land on some end times things, that you begin to use those phrases very intentionally for the sake of the mission of God. Let me further explain the potential confusion. I'm trying to identify the problem, okay? I'm trying to bring you on board with what I've witnessed and do my best to prevent that from landing at First Family. I want to remain a body fully focused on developing devoted followers. I think this will be a good swing point for many of you. Three or four multiple choice questions for you. Is... I'm going back to a phrase I mentioned earlier. Is God's chosen people, A, the nation of Israel as a geopolitical state? Or is it B, believing Jews anywhere in the world? Or is it C, the universal church? So what you would probably agree with me, I think where we'd find agreement is, yeah, I guess that term could be misunderstood depending on who you're talking to. So if you just say God's chosen people without really knowing what you mean by it or how they're hearing it, you actually may mean one of at least three things. Admittedly so, right? Granted, I'm not saying you have to agree with what I think about it. I'm just stating a fact that is a term that if used loosely can mean various things. Here's a phrase. The phrase, Palestinians are the problem. Is that A, code for Hamas? Or is that B, a racist statement? Or is it C, media leftovers? <laughs> like, I've heard that on the news. That sounds, you know, good to me. Let's say it. Let's pick another phrase. We stand with Israel. Now, we've heard that a good bit, right? Is that a, a political commitment to an ally? Is it B, a theological belief? Is it C, a geographical understanding? I love the looks I'm getting. I think, actually, you're, you're sensing what I've been saying. It's like, wow, there's some phrases that I just thought meant one thing, but I didn't know they could mean something else, and I didn't know that, depending on the ethnicity or the location, that people heard them differently. Like, this is... You're sensing how our language is, if unnecessarily and unintentionally loose or narrow, can communicate various things. That's all I'm trying to identify. Is there is a problem that can cause us to be less missional if we're not careful. Here's another phrase for you. The phrase, they have a right to the land. In your mind, is that based on a divine promise, a legal decision, or a superior military force, A, B, or C? And how you see that will affect your conversation. So, so if you're kind of tracking with me how sometimes our Focus and language, if not intentional and specific, could create some division unintentionally and lost opportunities. Could you just kind of nod at least a little bit? Let me hear 
what's up there? Like, I think I'm tracking with you. Okay. That's kind of what I've sensed in multiple uh, situations and instances. Again, anecdotal. If you don't know what you believe about these terms and concepts, and this will be a little repetitious, but let me just kind of work through this. I think using them loosely or widely or generally can actually create unintentional distance between yourself and a Palestinian or an ethnic Jew or an Arab. You see, context matters. You could even say the environment of our words matter. Definitions matter, both biblically and culturally. And we should work as hard as we can and as hard as we need to at being contextually aware as possible in our language and focus so that we are as scripturally missional as possible. Now, don't think for a minute that the people I just mentioned aren't near you. Apart from an ethnic Jew, we have them in our church. We have at least one Palestinian. We may have an ethnic Jew. I don't know of them, but we may. We definitely have all three in Ankeny, and we for sure have all three in Metro Des Moines. Arabs, ethnic Jews, Palestinians, and then Americans. Our closest fields right around us have the very people whose relatives miles away are in serious conflict with each other. So I want you to hear your pastor say to you, how we speak about this issue does matter. Maybe not in a grand way or a large way, but the world is flattening. Ethnicities are living closer together. It does matter to some degree. So we need to understand context to a certain degree. And I want to help us realize that the mission to reach people of all nations is the most important issue. It's the mandate of the church. It's the priority matter that must affect our entire life. For sure, our language and focus. So as I've been learning how to be more focused, uh, better clarifying, um, God brought two men into my life to help me with this. And I want you to meet them now. They're going to each take about 10 minutes and share with you. I love these men, and I've grown to love them more as the Lord has intersected my life. And if I can just be very vulnerable with you, my ignorance with their intelligence in these areas. We don't agree on everything. We agree on the most important things. And God has really used them to help me learn how to stay more missional as a pastor through more specific and intentional language and focus. One of the men you'll meet is a Palestinian who grew up in that area. One is an American who lived there for years as a businessman and as a missionary. I want you to hear from them how they are staying on mission in a culture and environment that's usually political or geographical. Okay? So I want you to meet, first of all, Matt Khalil. Matt, you join me up here on the platform? Matt will introduce himself and tell you a little bit about who he is and just share about 10 minutes with you uh, how he is um, 
I think the idea is, you know, the context and focus, language and stuff. And I'll let him speak. This is not scripted. I didn't tell them what to say. I have just grown to appreciate their influence in my life in this area. And I thought, you know, before I share, I think you should hear from them. So, Matt, have some fun here with our people, buddy. Thanks, Todd. Uh, thanks for inviting me and thanks for coming. I really Come appreciate it. For, for those on the camera, we got a camera shot. We're trying to record right. this. So, there we go. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for showing interest and wanting to, to learn more, and I appreciate um, that you're here, uh, honestly, from my heart. Amen. Um, I don't have this scripted, and I'm going to share a little bit about myself, and um, it, it might be confusing, and that's fine. Find me, and we can talk more about that. Um, so my name is Matt Matthew. Um, we, my wife and I attend First Family, uh, my wife Mallory. Uh, we've been here 18 months, around 18 months, um, and we have four children. I've been here in the U.S. Uh, for about 17 years, and I am a Palestinian Israeli. And if that is confusing, I totally understand. <laughs> and on top of that, I'm also an American, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I, I understand that could be confusing, so if you want to know more of what that means, find me and we can get coffee and talk about that. Um, yeah, I, so I grew up a Palestinian in a Palestinian community um, in the country of Israel, and uh, for me that, you know, it, it's, it's something very, very special and at the same time very confusing to me because I have a mix of identities and now, and my mother is British also, but my father is Palestinian and I grew up in a Palestinian community, so I identify more with the Palestinian community. Um, but I have Israeli citizenship and now I have U.S. citizenship. And I... I Honestly, I did not choose any of those identities, and but I do have an identity in Christ that I did choose. And I've been wrestling with this for years and years because this war that's happened now, it's not the first time. It's... <laughs> Amen. It's happened multiple times, and this one is understandably uh, at a greater um, impact to the world. And as much as I have wanted to, and I have in the past, clinged to one of the narratives, the earthly narratives, that the media, the, the world, the, the, the political um, leaders want you to to take. Um, I've only found peace in my identity in Christ. So I can totally relate with being missional and thinking missional. Um, and what, what has really helped me is thinking about that because a lot of people 
ask me now, what do you think about the situation? And a lot of questions I get is, well, what's the solution? Do you ever see peace? And there's a political, cultural answer to that, and then there's a biblical answer to that. And I so want to get into the political answer because a lot of those people asking me, um, I, I, I make assumptions on and I, I think I know where they stand, so I, I already want to argue with them before I get there. And then I remember that the biblical solution is the only one that makes sense, just like the identity that I have, mm. uh, the, it's the only one that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I think the that's where I, I explain, you know, um, you can form your, your political, um, even your end time beliefs, um, and you could believe um, a, a pastor's opinion, you could believe a political leader's opinion, but I, I've been encouraging everyone to form their own opinion based on the Bible and the, the gospel, really. Um, for me, that has made the most sense as I've wrestled through, through this, through my, my whole life. And really this, um, I feel like this year I'm more spiritually mature to be able to handle that and talk to people. And it's been overwhelming to me. But I've had a, a lot of support and God has been answering a lot of my prayers. Um, so as much as I don't want to keep talking about this because I do get emotional, I, I would love to meet with every one of you and share what I know. Yes, context matters. And if you if you are interested in politics of it, the political um, conviction of it, the cultural. I think I encourage people to learn that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I would be glad to give, you know, what I know and the context I know and help you understand more about that. Um, living there myself, uh, I think it, it is important. Um, but I feel like that will serve you no good if you're not going to invest in forming your opinion based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm... Can we thank Matt, first of all? There you go. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Yeah. Yeah. Let's come here a little front a little bit. I, don't, I won't put you on the spot. Uh, this is a deeply emotional issue for you. Uh, the first one's about growing up in Nazareth. You said Palestinian, Israeli. And I'm, I think even still I'm saying things incorrectly. Yeah. So um, what was that like? Did you feel like you weren't really part of the nation or did you feel like you were? Or Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, a lot of people ask me, where are you from? And my answer has changed throughout the years because I, whatever I tell them, they, you know, they make assumptions already. I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, hold on. Um, but, yeah, I grew up in Nazareth, and um, I have two fathers, and they're both um, carpenters from Nazareth. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, my, um, my father is actually a carpenter from Nazareth, um, 
and then went into ministry. Um, yeah, so Nazareth is um, mostly Muslim, 80% Muslim, and 20% um, Christian. And I, I want to say maybe the majority of that 20% is either um, Roman Orthodox Christians or mm -hmm. Catholic Christians. Um, so evangelicals are a huge minority there, but there's a lot of active churches and ministries um, in Nazareth and other Christian villages around there. Um, really, the it, we all identify as Palestinians, and we all speak Arabic in Nazareth. And I grew up um, actually going to a Baptist school. Um, I had classmates that were Muslims and Christians at the Baptist school. It was you know, a, a ministry in that sense. Um, I grew up speaking English and Arabic, and we learned Hebrew in in school. Um, and then I, I never really used Hebrew until I went to college because I grew up in a Palestinian community. Um, so when I, when I went to college, I started making friends with um, Israeli Jews. And... Um, it, you know, it, it was normal and we all shared the same laughs, um, the, the same interest in music. And, um, so really the, the land of Israel is a mix of cultures and ethnicities and most of them are, um, not Christ followers, and most of them are secular Jews and secular Muslims and secular Christians. Um, and there's a there's a f quite a few um, churches that teach the Bible. And um, like when when you were mentioning certain things that we could say, um, those people are impacted by stances, political stances we, we take, and I've been trying to um, help people understand that the mix of cultures there and how things matter, the things that we say matter. So let's just, uh, let's just tackle one of those. This phrase I included here, Palestinians are the problem, which is kind of a media phrase at times, probably code for Hamas, or they take this one strip, the Gaza Strip, and they say, well, that's where the Palestinians are, that's where the problem is. Emotionally, um, yeah, how does that resonate with you when it's kind of a lump, a lump of people are included now as the issue? Yeah. And I mean, there's some assumptions made. Like, walk us through that just for a minute, could you? Yeah, and I, so that that used to create bitterness and anger in me. Um, but living living here for so long, I I understand why people would think that uh, because. Uh, because of the media and the education system and what we're exposed to here, and there's not enough of this happening in churches uh, for people really to know. Um, the, the Palestinian people are indigenous, and you could read that in, act, in Acts. Um, it mentions Arabs. It mentions other cultures. Um, there's a little town outside of Bethlehem that's the shepherd's town, and and um, it's called Beit Sahur, um, and it's mostly 
Palestinian Christians, um, they're going extinct right now. Um, and uh, that, that, that's the community I identify with. And um, it's a huge ministry to the majority of Palestinians who are Muslims. Um, before the state of Israel became a nation, Palestinians included uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And, you know, it's hard for people to understand how that is possible, but it's factual. It was a land area. And yeah. People of those identified yeah, as the land. Right. Um, and there's, you know, the, there's a lot of terms that are um, out there uh, that, that we we could identify with and some we don't understand, um, you know, uh, jihad or Zionism or Palestinians or Israelis. Um, there's Israelis that are Palestinians. So it's, it's a very, very, it's a, it's a culture there that's mixed with religion, politics, um, history, context, um, context that, you've been exposed to in context you haven't been exposed to. Um, yeah, context is very, very, very important. On a personal note, um, on a personal note, it was a special moment for me and Matt. Can I get you to come up here again? Yeah. You keep wanting to slide back Sorry. to your guitar slot, don't you? Where he, Matt plays for us a lot and yeah. he'll stand right there. I feel comfortable You're there. up here today, buddy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, on October 7th, uh, Julie is so, such a, um, and she's just a fantastic um, partner and wife. She, when we got news of that, she said, you ought to reach out to Matt Mallory. She knew they were Palestinian, or he's Palestinian, Mallory's not. Is Mallory here? That's right. That's what I thought. Okay. But uh, she just said, she knows, like, he ought to reach out to Matt. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So they were at a, like a gala. I think I called or texted. And I said, hey, I, I know this news probably causes a lot of, in your heart. He had just talked to me about some things earlier. I forget how we connected, but um, that began some real conversation about things I just didn't even know. Context, uh, words, definitions, and it began a whole like landslide of like, wow, I, I had no idea. And so, um, yeah, just thanks for how you've helped me grow since that phone call. And just being patient with me as your pastor, I really appreciate that. I, a lot here I don't know. Uh, when we met in person at their house, his first words were like, listen, I don't support Hamas. <laughs> so he said, that's evil. He, he wasn't there. He said, but I am Palestinian. Like, eth ethnically, that's who's doing the evil. But he said, that's not all of us. And it was just a beautiful moment. Uh, as brothers. I yeah. just appreciate the way you've helped me. Yeah, you're welcome. And and, and I don't know anyone um, mm. from back home that does support Hamas, but I bet I can find one way faster than you can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Can we thank Matt again? Yeah, that's good. Come on up here. Another man that I've grown to love that I want you to hear from is Kent Splawn. So Kent's going to join me on the platform as well. And uh, Kent, again, just in chatting with him multiple times, has really helped me grow. And I've got so far to go still, but he's really helped me in understanding um, 
how to really have a heart for all kinds of ethnicities. He was there as a businessman and as, as a missionary. So, Kent, take some time and share with us your perspectives on some of this and how you've remained missional even while you were there and lived in the middle of some of these very crises that occurred randomly. One of the stories we heard early on, um, well, I'll back up. We've been there twice, a total of about 10 years. We were there from 89 to 94, and I was working in news and audio and video production. Thank you. Well, I could hear me. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then we had 20 years in between, and we were back from uh, 2014 to 2019, and my wife and I managed a guest house on the Sea of Galilee. Overall, probably the best 10 years of our lives, <clears throat> from the standpoint of knowing that our faith geographically and spiritually is centered there. Um, I've met a handful of, of Palestinians who say they can claim uh, and I didn't mean to accentuate that word, but what they have said is that we can trace our lineage back to the time of Christ. Well, nobody taught me that in any church. That simply wasn't there. The, uh, the verse that uh, Matt referred to, uh, you know, from Acts 2, uh, you know, talks about that list of nations. And the second to the last one is the Arabs that had gathered together. The, the fascinating thing about that is all of those nations listed there were, were within the Roman Empire at the time of Christ. So essentially, the known world, you can debate that all you want, but the known world in the Middle East had come together in Jerusalem. They were, this was the town, the city, the village where people went north and south and east and occasionally west for trade routes and all kinds of things. It really was a center, not a massive place, but the fact that everybody came through there. Uh, if I don't start this now, I'll never get back to it. <laughs> I guess one of the things that I wanted to um, to say based on what Pastor had told me on the missional aspects of it is knowing what we know with what we're watching in the news over the past seven weeks is what do we do with that horror that's happening out there? And what do we do with the good news in the midst of that? Mm. Um, for the first three weeks, my, my wife and I were down a rabbit hole uh, following the various news feeds coming out of Israel. We didn't follow anything coming out of America. We only followed Israeli feeds. And, and they were just horrifying uh, without commenting on the accuracy of any of it because we can't. It's just what's in front of us. And if you're not praying, you will end up being dragged down the direction that they're telling you to go. You have to find some way to exercise some discernment when you see all this stuff. The, uh, but still, it was, a, it was a very dark, dark time we began to contact a lot of our friends to say, is anybody from among the congregations, when I say congregations, the ones that we knew were largely believing Jews who had found Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about fellowships where they were speaking Hebrew, not English. When we were there the first time, now 30 years ago, there were a great many fellowships that were begun by missionaries from other nations. And there would be Hebrew speakers there, but everything was done in English primarily. But now that's not the case. And so we started getting lists of names. We didn't know the kids who were on the front line, but we knew some of their parents whose kids had been sent to Gaza or who had been called up in the reserves. And it's just like, it's like, oh God, <laughs> oh God, you have got to do something here. Mm -hmm. And among the very first prayers was, you know, Lord, we need you to pour out your spirit on all nations, everybody in Gaza, everybody on the other side of the line, so that they know who the Messiah is. Because as Matt said, this is not going to end until you know him. Mm. Um, so let's, so what, what do we do with the good news? We have our opportunities here to share. Whether we do it or not is between us and God. But that's what we're called to do. 
um, all of mankind is eligible for this. Everyone. You know, Pastor Todd mentioned earlier that, uh, in fact, in this morning's message, the fact that we're beyond post-Christian, we're into anti-Christian. So if you want to stand up for Jesus Christ, people are going to get in your face in a hurry. Does that stop what we're supposed to do? Mm. Um, Going back all the way to the Psalms, I found this fascinating. We learned this a number of years ago in a missions class. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. The Lord says, May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth and your salvation to all nations. Well, the Jews were supposed to be a missionary people. Salvation is coming out of Zion. Well, we know that through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We know that today, at least, I've met a number of young men and women under 30s, uh, Israeli born and raised, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have literally gone out to all the places that Israelis go after they finish the, uh, the army. And they go out to play for six months or a year. And these guys go out to share faith with them. Salvation is coming out of Zion. The numbers of, uh, of believers in the, uh, in the Arab community is, I don't know, a hundredfold more than what you have from the Jewish community. The, uh, to a large extent, the history of Christianity in that area post-Acts, for those of you who know that part of your word, most, the vast majority of the early believers were Jewish who came to faith. And that's a whole other story. We won't go into all that here. <laughs> Sorry. You're good. <laughs> okay. The other thing is, so how do we engage with, with people when our civilization has moved so far from what our grandparents knew? When this, the idea of, of having a biblical foundation had some merit to it. You, you could uh, hit you know, one out of two people and find somebody who could quote scripture and Old Testament stories to you and things like this, they knew this, not anymore. What has God called us to do when we look at something like what's happening in, in, in Israel and realize that people are killing each other every day or almost every minute of every day to a certain extent, and how do we share with them knowing that we have the answer, neither of them are interested in that answer on the front, on the front of things. Um, Jesus' call to us hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. It doesn't matter how difficult the situation is or how opposed to us the people are that we're facing. Um, now, you covered so much, Matt. It's, just, it's, it's difficult to, without just repeating the things that, he's, that he was, was saying, the, the concept of probably 90, 95% of, of Jews are, um, let's just say agnostic rather than say atheist. Because they have a very strong concept of God, but they don't follow him. Now, for most people, that's a shock. I mean, if they hadn't kept the Torah and the Old Testament, what would we have to read? You know, if out of them God hadn't sent Jesus to be born, what would we have but for the Jewish people? God chose them to start this whole thing off. Now, there's really no debate about that scripturally. The importance it takes in our lives now, that's where the, the discussion can begin and as far as the covenants and so forth. And that's not what we're here to discuss now. This will be for a, another discussion later on. To me, what it's saying is a certain part of my prayer I give over to the Jewish people because of the, of the history of our Messiah, because of the fact that he's coming back to Jerusalem and not to Hong Kong or New York or London. I don't know why God planned it this way, but he did. And so for me, I look at that and I think, all right, there's going to be 144,000 
who have not known a woman who are going to be taking the scriptures all around Israel and the world. There are things like this in the scripture that you have to read and realize, okay, this was God's choice. It's not mine. Are they lovers of Palestinians? No. Am I a lover of Palestinians? There's only one answer for that. Mm. And you got to check your heart mm. as to how you're going to answer that. Um, we've spent a lot of time around, around Muslims as well, not, not in Israel so much, but in, in other places. And um, heart just wrenches sometimes when I want to sit down and talk to the Muslim because I, I know the truth. But how can I tell them the truth without condemning their faith? How can I speak to their heart and not to the decision that they have made somewhat blindly at some point in their past? Knowing what we know, just look at the response of a lot of people who have come down on the side of Hamas, you know, over the past six or eight weeks. I'm thinking, you're behind this? But when I sit down across from a cup of coffee, then how do I address that? How do I speak to their heart and say, well, here's who Jesus is. They come back, oh, well, no, you haven't read the Quran. Oh, no, I have. Not all of it. I have read bits of it. Their version of Jesus is quite different from ours. They are not the same. Their view of Allah is not the same as God. We're coming from different places. And when you're going to approach people who are presenting points of view that are so radically different from our own, I'd, I'd strongly suggest fasting in addition to prayer because you wanna work from here. You cannot work from the press and you cannot work from your head. You cannot work from any form of media when you sit down. You have to approach them as Christ would have approached them. Okay, it's easy to say that sitting up here. It's quite another to do that. Um, <laughs> for example, some of you know I drive for Lyft, which means I have all kinds of people in the car. I had a guy from Sudan, I had a long trip. I picked him up in Ames and brought him back down here. And I thought, awesome, I wanna see what he thinks about this current conflict. Uh, he's a businessman, civil engineer. He said, I'm not, I'm not a religious man, but I am a Muslim. He was very sure about that. But our points of view were opposed at every, at every area. And um, I could say, well, the truth about Jesus simply, it's, it's what it is. He did come, he did die, he did raise again. Uh, that is incontrovertible. And he just said, no, it's not. You go, okay, if I'd had his background, that's exactly how I would have responded. Witnessing to people who have completely other views requires a point of compassion that I am praying and fighting for all the time. Because otherwise I'll take my stance and assume it's right all the time. And then I have no ground from which to, from which to work. I have to find some way not to step into their world, but to understand their world. Um, yeah. Let's see. Let me go back to Jesus' words. This is the only way that I can stay missional. Remember when Jesus was talking to the woman, the Samaritan woman, and one of the things that he told her right away was, woman, well, in Hebrew, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, which is Jews and Assyrians intermarrying sometime after the time of Solomon, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Nowhere in that sentence is your ethnic background. Nowhere. 
And it simply isn't there anywhere in the words of Jesus, with the exception of maybe two things. One is to the Jew first and to the Greek. Paul reiterates that. Paul also later says, but hard times will be visited on the Jews first and then to the Greek, Mm -hmm. which is about as equitable as you can get, I think. Jesus goes on to say in in John chapter 10, I've got other sheep that are not of the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, one flock and one shepherd. This is where the plurality is just tossed in the bin. Anyone can come to Jesus at any time from anywhere, but there's just one Jesus. How do we present that? with love, with caring, and with compassion with people who hold different points of view. Matthew, the verse that we all know, in fact, we just heard this uh, when we had our missions, uh, missions week uh, about uh, six, eight weeks ago. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's no divisions here. There's no lines. There's no borders. There's no border guards. There's no passports. None of that stuff is here. And then to, uh, to quote to what Matt referred to earlier from Acts 2, 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation. This was the time of Pentecost, one of the three feasts that all the Jews must come to Jerusalem for. So you had the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. And when those people, those the Arabs that I had met said, well, yeah, we can trace our family back to the time of Christ. I go, yeah, absolutely. Maybe you can't find the birth certificate, but it makes perfect sense that you know that you came from that area of the Middle East, broadly, you know, broadly speaking. It certainly can be home for you, you know, with faith in the Lord. The, there, there's a, there's a, a gap bridging that takes place in, in Ephesians. And it's the only thing that I have found specifically that tells me what the answer is to the Middle East crisis. And it's Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, parenthetically, Jew and non-Jew in the entire list from Acts 2. He has made them both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation to as to create one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's it. There isn't anything else that's going to change this. This war is just the the worst in a long string, at least five or six wars since 48. There's all kinds of stories that can be told there. Um, The fact is, without Jesus, this conflict is going to continue going in various forms until the time uh, when the Lord returns. Uh, I do not see personally that changing, and I think it's going to get far worse. If you read Revelation, you'll see it is going to get far worse if we're looking at even a moderately um, literal translation of what's, uh, of what's written there. So for me, his, this is how we stay missional, is we come back to what are Jesus' words and the rest of the New Testament? What do they say to us about sharing our faith? Um, Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. And 1 Peter 3, 15, in your hearts revere Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, We were talking with somebody here at the church last Sunday 
coming out, what's, what's the difference between a Christian and a man, a woman of God? Whose oil lamp is full and whose is not? Uh, it's, we would love to say once saved, always saved. That's not the debate. The fact is, are you following Christ? One of the things I love coming out of here was the fact that the encouragement is to read our Bibles at least five times a week. I didn't hear that in any of the other churches in any country that we, we've been in a number of those. That's not something that's been, that's been drilled into us in a, in a good way. The, uh, let's see. I can't speak from my heart if I don't know the word, if it's not hidden in there. You know, lest I sin against you, Lord, hide your, hide your word inside my heart. I can't love somebody unless I know the character of Jesus as it is in his word. And as I discover in his prayers in the times of, of listening, which are really few, they need to be more and more. But what God has done, and this will be the last bit, is how he has given me opportunities to share, not just opportunities, but then the desire to finally get beyond the fear of man and start talking to complete strangers about him, uh, especially if I'm the one that has to come up with the, uh, with the entry phrase to get in. Um, this year, I've had a lot of co-pays, um, PT, Cairo, all kinds of things for injuries and stuff. But when you are laying in that chair or on that bench, you've got sometimes 20, 30 minutes. If you can't find a way to bring Jesus into that, then you need to go back and start to pray. That's a captive audience. That's just why. It may seem like a small area, but I'm sure more than one person here has had at least one trip to the, to the doctor this past year. Um, and as I said, I drive for lift. Um, when you, once you get in the car less than 10 years old or over 10 miles per hour, the door locks. They're not going anywhere. You know, so you've, you've pretty much got them at that point. Um, but that's the opportunity. I, I, I didn't see that coming. And then they're in the back seat. I've got them for five to 25 minutes or whatever the ride happens to be. I've got to find a way. And Christmas season, oh, if you can't start a conversation about Jesus now, you need to check your own heart and see if you are. You and God can work that detail out. But if what he's done in you is not enough for you to start a conversation and share it with someone, you better get on your face and find out what this is about. We are the ones, we and the others in this city, we have the way of life. And so many people are running the other way from Jesus. And it is our responsibility to do this. God has a huge grace for us. He just wants us to try. So, when I look at this, I mean, the question is, what are you willing to do? How uncomfortable are you willing to be so that you can get something out about Jesus, especially in this particular month? The, I'm, in fact, I'm going to create a playlist. When you were listing the, the hymns at the beginning, I thought, I'm just going to do a playlist for my car. And I'm going to have all these, the, psalm, the psalms, all the hymns I can come up with, the carols, that have just scripture in the lyrics, and just put that on repeat in my car. And I'll be doing that from now on until the end of the new year. And because that's going to be my ready end. And you can do that anywhere in the Hy-Vee checkout line, wherever you happen to be. Look for opportunities. Ask God for opportunities. And he will give them if you ask. And how much more joy is there when someone comes to faith? Oh, we know what the scripture says about that. So, yeah, that'll cover it for right now. Okay. A couple questions. Thank you, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I feel like you did an invitation for a minute here. It's good preaching, buddy. Way okay. to bring it hard. Um, <laughs> Based on your last words, that idea of conversation, starting things, that, that would really heighten the need to make sure our, our 
definitions and language isn't loose. So that if we're starting one of these conversations with a Palestinian or an ethnic Jew or an Arab or something that we don't throw out a conversation starter that actually offends right off the bat. True? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, Matt, Matt said this right. We can discuss this over a cup of coffee afterward. We can get into more detail. There are many, many questions if you really want to get into the, uh, the geopolitical aspects of the Middle East. And there may be some value in that. But if that's the goal of your conversation is to establish a winner and a loser there, no, you're wasting mm. your time, mm. personally. When you were there, um, did you find, and this is probably an opinion answer, the conflict between the Palestinians and then the, I'm not even sure word is right here, Matt, yeah. but like, you know, the, the, the ones that are conflicting, was it as rampant just in natural life as it seems to us to be officially? Well, you minister to both Palestinians and then ethnic Jews too, right? You had... Well, I, I would hesitate to say ministering in the way that if you were a church planter in a foreign country okay. where you're so intentional. Okay. Um, we managed the guest house. I worked in news. I had other you know, responsibilities. Okay. Um, I think the, the key is, can you bring a conversation away from the flashpoint while acknowledging that person's sincerity in having that opinion. And, I, if, and that takes work, you know, to, to do that. Um, with the people that I knew personally, because they knew I was there as a follower of Christ, and that's the work that I was doing, they knew that I wasn't Jewish and I wasn't Palestinian. Um, Whenever I start a conversation with somebody, I try to get to the point of establishing why I'm here, because I felt like God opened the door for me to come here as a follower of Jesus. Um, There are little things you can do. For example, when I'm overseas, I never use the word Christian. Christian is laden with, um, I wouldn't even use the word nuance. Nuance is way too subtle for some of the negative aspects that both Jews and Arabs have concerning the label Christian. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, or I follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. It doesn't change a thing, but you don't raise the barrier, then start the conversation. Hmm. I can, I, that's a good word. I, I want to kind of push back a bit, but I appreciate that because okay. I think in other parts of the world, no, not here. I don't want to push back in front of these people. I think you're right. I think I've just yeah. never heard it quite put that way in that part of the land, but I think in other parts of the world, if you say Christian, they think that means you're American. So I think you make well, a do. valid Absolutely. point. Like, not just in the Middle yeah. East. That's in, almost anywhere else in the yeah. West as well. There's a, a friend of ours who's a Druze. Uh, Matthew knows what a, what a Druze is. He is an Arab. Um, most of them come from Syria and that area. But there's several thousand of them that live in, uh, in generally small villages within the, the northern part of the land. One of these young men, well, he's not young now, he's my age, um, came to faith about 15 years ago when his daughter was, uh, was healed uh, while in the hospital. Uh, a Jewish believing nurse came by, prayed for her. She got up and walked out. It was, they didn't know it wasn't terminal, but she was very, very ill and nothing was having any impact. Well, she, uh, the nurse prayed. The daughter basically came to and walked out the next day. He gave his heart to Christ. Well, he lives in a village of around 20,000 people, uh, Mukhar, which you know where that is. Um, most of those people in that village are of the same Druze faith, which has got some similarities to Islam. That's another, another discussion as well. He was immediately ostracized, he and his whole family. He couldn't get jobs. Uh, he's been suffering ever since. So there is real persecution 
the moment you accept Jesus. When a Muslim accepts Jesus, when an Orthodox Jew accepts Jesus, they're going to be hammered by everybody of their former faith. That is a very real persecution that goes on today in all three of those areas. We know so little about persecution. You made a point mm. several weeks ago about it's hard to have deep compassion for people unless you've been persecuted in some way, unless you've known suffering of some kind. People who come to faith in the Middle East, they pay a really significant price. If you're in a Muslim-majority country, not Israel, yeah. and you come to faith, it can cost you your life, mm -hmm. and quite often does, and many other nations too. Okay. Uh, but just to, okay. I probably found a dog leg there, sorry. <laughs> no problem. Kent, thanks for just helping me be a better pastor. And uh, yeah, even understanding history better and from one, it's just been very helpful to get to know more about what you experienced there and how it's helped me. So thank you. Can we thank Kent for just this? Thank you, yeah. yeah, I think it's important that you hear from these two men. I, they've been a real help to me. And um, there's a lot packed in there. I think they're offering to you. Again, if you want to talk more, see them. They'll be available afterwards. Um, but all that was to help us identify the problem. This is a seminar, so I don't feel bad for the deluge of information and that we're still have got 55 minutes left. You knew it when you came in, two to four. We're going to use every minute, okay? Because we, I think we've established, at least I feel like we have, and I think you would bear witness that just so many factors make our language and focus paramount. So let me see if I can provide a prescription. I'll start with some of the phrases we used earlier. In this section, I'm going to give you some examples that would be better than what we did earlier. And I'm going to offer to Matt and to Kent a chance if they want to edit on the fly. I think they probably have a better sense of this than I do. But I've taken a stab at helping develop a little better language regarding the phrases we looked at. So tip number one. Instead of using God's chosen people or a right to the land, and we'll use air quotes around some of these. Instead of using those loosely or culturally, let's tighten them up with biblical definitions. In contrast to like cultural or even Christianly cultural definitions. So here's some examples of ways we could say that. And these would be representative of, of various views. If you don't hear yours off the bat, don't throw eggs yet. Let me finish the list. For instance, you could say God's chosen people is a nation. So if you're a citizen of Israel, you're chosen by God. I wouldn't be a fan of that phrase, but that would be a specific phrase. Would you admit that? That's someone who would at least be delineating exactly what they mean, whether it's right or wrong. Like you, it's clear. Here's another one. The people, who, the people God chose as the avenue to bring Christ into the world was the Jewish ethnicity. It's a little more clear about what God did and who he chose, right? Here's another option. God's chosen people, which is now anyone who believes in Jesus, dot, dot, dot. That's a phrase you could use. Here's another option. God's chosen people are now ethnic Jews all over the world. Maybe if that's what you, or you land, you could use that. It gives a qualifier, more modifiers. Here's another one. 
God's chosen people are now the church, which is full of both Jews and Gentiles. You could, that again, more qualifiers, modifiers. Um, here's one about the land. And Matt has told me before, he said, you know, Todd, that really is the issue over there. And he, he'll need to unpack more of that with you if you want. But that was an interesting conversation too. But here's one about the land. He, you could say this. It's a little long. Hang with me. If you landed here, you could say the land was actually given to the Jewish people when they were a theocracy. And they received it from God because they were the ones from Abraham. But they lost it due to disobedience. And now that all Christians are considered Abraham's seed, the physical land isn't really a God's people issue any longer. You could say that. You may not agree with that, but see how clarifying that is? The person listening would hear it and be able to converse with you and not just make assumptions. Matt and Kent, any suggestions on that one about the land or about God's chosen people that you'd want to add some uh, benefit to? Regardless of the use, like anyway, anything you want to add to that, just pick that Pick the mic up and jump in. And I'm open to correction for sure. You know, you'll never embarrass me. So, why don't you go ahead and stand? And yeah, that'd be good right there. Yeah, I think when I was when I've told you in the past, the issue really is is the land. Um, it it is because there's there's a lot of other Arab and Jewish communities that don't have the same conflict like that around the world, um, and when when you take a stance and um, uh, about the land, it it could easily um, exclude a certain group of people um, that Jesus didn't when he was in the land. Um, yeah, I think I'm trying to remember what you said about the times of COVID, he said, thinking about it um, mis Mission. biblically, missionally. And letting the medical folks take care of the medical parts. Yes, and not, not medically. Yeah. I, I, I think this is really the same situation um, because making your, your phrase more specific, right, it, it's going to force you to back that up with... Be, being that specific and when you do that you're going to either go down the rabbit hole of um, medical political or uh, biblical and so you know e even if you do make your phrase specific um, you, you have to you're going you're gonna face that um, crossroad you're gonna have to choose to, to make it biblical or, uh, or political, cultural. Okay. Um, so if you, can I interrupt here for a second? Yeah. But, so if you, I sense maybe he's saying be more general. I would probably disagree with that because I would be willing to accept the fact that if I can be specific and back it up, that would be worth the conversation. He may be right that maybe that's not worth it. I don't know. That might be a thing we have to almost test and see. So just be aware. He's saying if you get specific, you'd better make sure you know what you believe about your specifics. 
Is that kind of what you're saying, Matt, or am yeah. I misinterpreting you? Yeah, I guess I am saying that, but I'm also saying if you're going to be specific about, like, I'm okay if you're being specific biblically, but but if you're going to choose to be specific politically, you got to get it. You got to also be specific biblically, and I say this because um, a lot of biblical opinion, or sorry political stances and political geopolitical opinions can be backed up by some theology or some biblical um, verses and it gets gray it gets a gray area where it's not very specific um, so I I think it, it is a good tool to um, start the conversation and um, yeah, really trying to understand the other person or want to lead to to ministering to them. Um, it does help. And, um, but I, I think it, you have to have some context. And mm. someone like Kent has a lot of context because he's lived there and he spent a lot of time there. And... Um, you know, I, th- I think for for people here, um, if if this is a subject that it, you'd like to know more, um, get that context somehow. Okay. And yeah, that's a good answer there. That if you want to be specific, be willing to invest in context learning. Yeah, that's that's a helpful answer. Thank you. It's a good answer. Let's move on here and see if I can. Um, give you some other ideas on things to say that I think are actually more helpful. Again, not trying to say that I, that all these are uh, in a certain viewpoint. These are just more specific, modifying, clarifying phrases. They each have their own consequence, but at least they're not so general that they just, uh, you know, it's like a grenade in the middle of who knows what. For instance, instead of saying, we stand with Israel, or Palestinians are the problem, instead of saying that narrowly or politically, I would say widen it with a biblical perspective so that your focus is missional. So in one case, we're going to try to use language that's biblical, missional. Here, our focus is missional and biblical. For instance, you could say something like this. I think it's right to support those who are defending their citizens. And that seems to be what the nation of Israel is doing. You could say that. You're standing with them in a geopolitical or national sense. You could say something like this. Hamas is evil and terrorizing not only Israel, but cannibalizing their own. You could say that. It's a mercy, compassionate stance towards the Palestinians who don't like what Hamas is doing. They're being ravaged by it. You could say something like this. While I support the nation of Israel's right to protect their people and country, I also support saving as many lives as possible and praying for all the people in that area. You could say something like the goal is to save lives regardless of their ethnicity. You could say something like this. Just war theory. That's an actual theory about how to conduct a war. Just war theory declares governments have the responsibility to protect their people without undue damage or loss to to civilians. 
So I support governments who pursue peace through strength. You could say something like that. Or even one more. I support the nation of Israel because they are an ally for us in the region. But I also pray for and help God's people throughout the region, regardless of their ethnicity or nationality. So you may not agree with some of those. You may like some, not like some. I'm just trying to show you that as you think about certain phrases and words, and I've given you four samples, all of those, if just kind of lobbed out there, have a host of meanings. And I'm encouraging you to specify, clarify, and modify so that you have a better conversation that follows. Okay? Matt and Kent, any suggestions on maybe those two phrases? I'll start with Kent this time. We stand with Israel or Palestinians or the problem or something along those lines. Kent, anything you want to add quickly? Three, two, one. Ask me the question, do I stand with Israel? The short answer would be yes. But it doesn't take but about three or four seconds to realize, no, there's so much more behind that. Mm. And uh, so the idea is to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Um, and how many ways we can apply that scripture? Uh, but certainly it applies here. Uh, we, we should almost never launch out with the first thing that comes, you know, comes to our mind, especially in this particular area. The... Anecdotally, a few years ago, uh, a couple of our kids were with us, and we were visiting some, uh, some people down in the south near, near Beersheba. A couple of local Israelis were running a place, and we just said, do you consider yourself a Jew or an Israeli? How do you look at yourself? I said, oh, we're Israeli. I said, well, why not Jewish? I said, well, we're no, we know we're Jewish. We can't really get away from that, but I choose to be an Israeli. And then he listed a number of technological medical, military accomplishments that the Jewish people have achieved, for lack of a, of a better phrase, over the last, let's just say, 75 to 100 years, because it was a sense of pride for them. Being Jewish, he really he couldn't do anything about that. That's just what, how he was born and his grandparents and on back as far as he knew. And, but he wasn't a person of faith at all. I mean, he's got Jewish is not in his passport. It's just the state of Israel. I believe that's correct. Is that, is that right on passports? It doesn't say Jewish in those passports, as far as you know, Israeli passports. I don't think it's listed. Um, it it, it used to. So they have oh, used to? They have IDs that it used yeah, the to. Yeah, two yeah. Used to say uh, Christian, Muslim, Jew. Uh, it doesn't okay. anymore. I don't remember the reason uh, why. But what I saw was that the average Israeli did not, and this is very anecdotal, did not want to be known Jewish. They wanted to be known for who they were as a nationality. And for me, that was a real eye-opener as to how far away from God they've moved and how far, toward, how far toward the secular. So I want to concur with Kent, and this is a good nudge. We want to follow the Bible's admonition. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Like clarity is great. Good point. Thank you. We also want to be able to follow up, this goes to what Matt was saying, follow up our clarity and succinctness with good specific reasons. So if you were to have a no even for that question, you want to have a good reason for it and explain that or if you were to have a yes. So that's, that's a good word. Let's not dance around a simple answer if we don't have to, right? But let's be willing to back up our short answer 
in a way that's biblical, missional. So a lot of information here. I want to kind of wind down some of the, uh, provide a prescription, so to speak, to some of our language viruses, if we'll call them that, by sharing with you kind of what helped me arrive at language that I thought was most helpful. So here I'll, I'll probably get more personal, and this is where we'll probably venture into probably the most amount of disagreement, okay? I think it's important for you to realize I'm probably sharing with you really what has helped me converse, I believe, more compassionately. Um, and I would even say, from my angle, um, more effectively with people who have interest in this area or are from these ethnicities, okay? A language, the language and focus issue for me really began to take root when I just admitted to myself and just, I believed the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled. And I know that's going to probably start some disagreement off the bat. Um, but suddenly it just simplified a lot of things for me and enabled me to understand a lot of the conflict in a, I would say maybe a different way than maybe what I had been willing to consider before. Um, I probably have believed this for a while, but I think it began to take a lot clearer shape recently. Now, I realize that some here may not know what the Abrahamic covenant is. That's the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, in which God promised Abraham a number of things, including the land. And so for me to say, well, I believe that's been fulfilled. How has that motivated you, Todd? How has that been a personal benefit to speaking more compassionately and effectively Here's why. And I think if I, if I were to be nailed down, like, what's your thesis statement for this two-hour seminar? This would probably be it right here. That because I personally believe that the Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled, the conflict, in my opinion, as well as the previous ones, it's not a theological one. It is a geopolitical one. So during these end times, I believe the current crisis has far less prophetic ramifications. It does have some, but far less than perhaps we wish it had, my opinion. And I think it has much greater missional ramifications. You see, a lot of folks would love to engage about end times talk and what's next, as opposed to like what Kent said, what's now. What should we do right now for the mission of God? It's hard to have that conversation, but we love to talk about 666 and name your end time kind of concept or thing. I tend to think because I believe the covenant has been fulfilled, believe I could show this scripturally, that it is far less about a theological issue it's much more about a missional opportunity. It's not a political or national thing. This is an evangelistic moment, as has been most of these things. So I think you're wondering, like, well, Todd, how do you arrive at that conclusion? Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure what that even means, so can you explain it? Others are well aware of it, and they're like, man, Todd, I'm waiting. You know, I'm ready to <laughs> tackle this with you. Let me just provide some evidence for why I believe that, okay? 
kind of how I got there. You'll want to write these things down. Um, so if you have a pen or some paper, I'd encourage you to jot these scriptures down. This goes back to what I said earlier. I do believe that probably two people could see these scriptures and have a different end interpretation. And man, I completely respect and graciously interact with those brothers and sisters, and I would want the same from you. Because this is not a symposium or a forum, it's a seminar. I want to share with you how I arrive at what I arrive at and how it's helped me. So I do believe there's a truth line and a timeline in play here regarding the Abrahamic covenant, how it has been fulfilled, and how it helps us now realize we're not trying to work something nationally or politically. We're just trying to be theologically missional in whatever opportunity God has given us. I think there's a truth line and a timeline. I'm going to give you the truth line of the covenant first, the way I see it. There's another system of thought that's different. I understand that. Here's where I land and how I think it's really helped me. I think the fulfillment of the covenant is stated in Scripture, first of all. So you can write this down. I think it's theologically stated. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. Now the context does talk about a yes and no answer and different things, but this statement is a pointer to, a, to an operational factor in God's economy, that Christ is an is the ultimate fulfillment of what God promises and prophesies. That all the promises really focus in on and find their fulfillment in Him. Some don't see that that way. I understand. I think that does mean that. Galatians 3, 16 and 17 is another good scripture about this. Here he says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed... This is Galatians 3.16. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So when I read that verse, I take it to mean the promises spoken to Abraham were about him and his seed, Christ. So when Christ came, the promises culminated. They were fulfilled. Admittedly, some don't see that. I do. Galatians 3, 27 and 29. I may not read all of these scriptures. You may just want to write them down. Um, he speaks about Abraham's seed. And uh, if we are uh, been baptized into Christ and been clothed with Christ, there's not Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we're one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul here says that any believer is an heir of Abraham's promise the ones made that were fulfilled in the seed. So if we're all heirs of this promise, then either we have to say we have a right to the land as well, or we have to be willing to say, no, they were fulfilled in Christ. And that's what we're receiving is Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's covenants. Again, not everyone sees that. I understand. Um, Romans 9, 6 through 8 is another good verse. Uh, showing how God's promises did not fail. Uh, and then Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Kent mentioned Ephesians 2. It's a beautiful verse, how Christ has brought together 
Jew and Gentile. We were foreigners to the covenants of promise, it says, but now we're no longer that. So again, you can take these in multiple ways. I take them to mean that God had a central purpose and message in the prophets, and that was to point us to Christ who would fulfill everything he had promised. And so when Christ came, I do believe uh, it fulfilled what he promised Abraham in a general overarching sense. I'll get clear, I'll get more specific in a minute about some of those elements of the land, the people, stuff like that. Now, one of the accusations people lodge against those who believe it's been fulfilled, and so it, it puts the conflict in Israel in a different framework when you realize this. Those, one of their accusations is like this. They say, well, Todd, then are you a replacement theologian? Some of you have heard that. Some of you don't know what they're asking you. So are you getting rid of Israel? And I would say that's not true at all. In fact, I don't know anyone who uh, gets rid of Israel as a nation described in the Old Testament. Paul is so thankful that God uh, is going to save a remnant of them. He's also thankful that through them, the oracles of God and the promises and uh, those things came. So not at all. I think it's a false accusation against those who would hold to, the, to an Abrahamic covenant fulfillment. Uh, in the same way that if someone were to say to me, Todd, I, I don't believe that certain spiritual gifts are available. If they said it to me, I wouldn't say to them, I bet you don't even believe in the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't say that to them. I wouldn't, that, that wouldn't logically make sense. They're gracious. They're God-fearing, Jesus-loving. They just have a different view on certain gifts based on certain scriptures. I wouldn't lodge an accusation that they're getting rid of the Holy Spirit. I tend to think that's how the accusation feels this way. I think what, the Holy, what God's done is he's merged the two. In fact, can't even read it. There's one new man out of the two. There's one tree. There is a root, and there are some grafted in branches, but there's still one tree. So I maintain there is one people of God. It's the church. In fact, I would say to you, whether we agree or not, we can be gracious. I would say to you, that is the current God's chosen people. Does it mean that Israel wasn't once ethnically and nationally and theocratically God's chosen people? It wouldn't negate that at all. But when Christ came and fulfilled all of those promises, then Gentiles who were believers became heirs of those promises. So I see it as an expansion, as a merger, not as a replacement. It's Israel and Gentiles together in one family, the one new man the single olive tree. Um, so I think it's theologically stated. I'm just giving you my reasons. I think it's historically displayed. Let me give you some references. You'll want to read these, especially if you're pretty sure, like, I don't believe this at all, Todd. I would like to challenge you with some references. I believe historically Joshua does chronicle the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, Joshua eleven twenty three says this, Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses and Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel 
according to their tribal, allots, uh, tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. And then 10 chapters later in Joshua 21, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their ancestors. None of, the, none of their enemies were able to stand against them, for the Lord handed over all their enemies to them. None of the good promises of the Lord that he had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. I love those verses. I think it shows an Old Testament immediate fulfillment of what he promised Abraham. Again, some would say, I'm not sure that's true. They would have ways to describe, well, that wasn't a full occupation, a full, um, you know, possession. Good people on both sides. But as I've read more about the history of this, how Peter preached in Acts 2 that um, Christ, the fulfillment, he witnessed in Acts 11 to Cornelius, the first Gentile. Paul merged both in Romans 11. He merged both in Ephesians 2. I think there's a historical element that we see uh, uh, an understanding that this was done and this is now God's people, the church. I also think it's ethnically applied. So it's scripturally stated, historically displayed, ethnically applied, meaning, again, I'm going to repeat myself here, but Paul states pretty clearly that there is now a, you know, one new man, Jew and Gentile, that it doesn't matter about circumcision or uncircumcision, Jew or Gentile. And then I think it's logically concluded. Let's see if I can lay this out for you briefly before I move to the timeline. And then we'll take some questions. If I can leave you only five minutes, I can get out of this pretty good, right? <laughs> I think it's logically concluded. Since according to Galatians 3, and just follow my reasoning here, Christ is the seed... And the seed is the core of the covenant. When that seed came, the covenant was fulfilled. It's, a lot of, it's not a lot of words, but it is the core essentials of how I think that works. If you realize that the seed is Christ, he came, fulfilled all righteousness. He didn't destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. In him were all heirs of Abraham, then it would make sense to say logically he is the fulfillment of those covenants. So that's my truth line. In all candor, people in this room and other folks who've written other places, I mean, they could come and probably use the very same scriptures and share with you something how they see it differently. And this is where I think Kent and Matt both said, you know, hey, you need to do your own research and figure out where you land. I have found that embracing this and realizing this makes those conflicts far less theological. And I'm not near as dependent on all those certain things happening over there. I don't have to side with one or not with the other. It just all seemed, it became the simplest way to biblically understand what's going on. So that just really drove me like, man, I think this is where I land. And though I have believed this for a few years, it has crystallized in the last probably 12 months. Let me give you a timeline that I think um, I could show biblically how I think the, the, the covenant is fulfilled. 
So I, I should have put a slide for this, but I don't have it. So just follow my hands here. 2000 BC, the covenant is made with Abraham. In 4 BC, Christ's first coming, the kingdom's inaugurated and fulfilled. The covenant's fulfilled in the inauguration of the kingdom. In 30 AD, the covenant, I believe, is what we call ratified in the death of Christ. All the nations of the earth are blessed through him, through his seed. Christ purchases for God a people to himself of every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. All the nations of the earth are blessed. He ratifies the covenant. He declares to his disciples, this is now the new covenant. In 70 AD, the temple's destroyed, left barren, meaning that system's obsolete and no more. And now we're waiting on is the second coming. I have no date for that, sorry. <laughs> At that point, the kingdom's consummated. That's a very simple timeline from the Abrahamic covenant, 2000 BC, to when the temple's destroyed in 70 AD, meaning that's not how we operate. You know, come to God through those sacrificing systems. It's through Christ who ratified the new covenant in 30 AD when he died. And now we're simply waiting on him to inaugurate the kingdom. I'd remind you that when Jesus came, he did say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is probably the difference, the core difference, one of the core differences between these two systems of thought or people who have differences on this. It's the nature of the kingdom. Some see the kingdom as completely literal and physical. And so Christ is coming to once again give it to Jewish people for a set amount of time. That they that Christ didn't bring the kingdom, he simply offered the kingdom and they rejected it. And so because they rejected it, uh, we have to wait now until they accept it and then it'll once again be a kingdom for the Jewish people that will then merge into a, like an eternal kingdom for all people. That's a view of the kingdom that would allow you to have a different view than this. If you see the kingdom more in a spiritual sense, which by the way, Jesus did say, my kingdom is not of this world. I think it's to Pilate. So if you were to take that sense and realize that we are heirs even now of Abraham's seed, you would say, no, we see the kingdom in, as one that actually did begin when Christ came. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. And now we're just waiting for what he inaugurated to be consummated when he comes back. I have deep friends who don't see it that way. I have close family who don't see it that way. They would say to you, I've got close family who don't see it my way, right? This doesn't make someone sinful. If I could say it this way, it doesn't make them wrong. It, it does affect how they see the Middle East crisis. It does affect what words they use when they talk to people about the conflict in Israel. It does. It does affect how you use the words God's chosen people a right to the land, all those phrases are affected by when and how you see the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. And as one of your shepherds, I want to encourage you to give strong consideration to knowing why either you do see it fulfilled or why you don't bring specificity and compassion to that so that when you speak to those we're from that area or in, you know, that you're not using language loosely. 
or na- or, or um, wrongly to unintentionally communicate something you actually may not believe. Let me lastly just share this thing with you, then I'll, I will, I promise you I will take some questions. I think some of the things about this timeline make people wonder, well, Todd, you showed me scripture for how he fulfilled the land part of the covenant. Like, you may not agree with that, but it is, at least there's some scripture there that says that not one of God's promises failed and that Israel got everything that was promised to their ancestors. You, that does say that. You say, Todd, what about the temple? Isn't that something to be rebuilt? Isn't that kind of like the focus? It was destroyed, but aren't there those who say it should come back? And so that's what's happening over in the Middle East. They're, they're working now to get this thing rebuilt. Kent mentioned the scripture where Jesus said, it won't matter at, at a future time where you worship. That day is coming. And the temple was destroyed. Jesus said about himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was he doing in that verse? It's Matthew, I think it's John 2. He was equating the temple with himself. Meaning, once he raises from the dead and the temple's destroyed, and I don't think it means chronologically, but he's saying, I am the temple. And if you think about it, his body is the church. So I easily arrive at this understanding that the temple is the body of Christ. It's Christ, it's the church. We are his abode. This is where he dwells, in us and among us. So I think that leans into an understanding that the covenant was fulfilled. God's chosen people are now his church full of Jew and Gentile. It helps me realize that what's happening over there, while important, it's something I can approach more geopolitically than necessarily theologically. I'm not going to have to work in all these different angles and views to make sure they fit over there. Say, Todd, what about people? You know, as as many of the sands of the shore and kings will come from you. Well, I think all of us would admit that that has happened in the sense that kings came from Abraham. Just look at the Old Testament. Not only just one line, but you have a split line for Solomon, two lines of kings, both good and bad. I would invite you to read 1 Kings 4.20. I don't have it in front of me, but there, an interesting phrase is used, speaking of Solomon's reign, in which it says that they are as many as the sands of the sea. It seems to be the same poetic language used in Genesis to describe, yes, what I said I would do for you, Abraham, I have done. Seems to say that. Just consider it. And then lastly, of course, the word seed. Often I think we hear the word seed as referring to all the offspring, but biblically, When it says the seed of the covenant, he's speaking that Christ would be the one to come through Abraham. Christ is the seed. So keep all that in mind. Some have asked me before, like, well, Todd, do you think there's a time uh, when there's a new Jerusalem or a new heavens? And I do. Kent was right. There's a reason it's in that part of the world. I don't know what it is, but we know that there is a uh, a second coming of Christ, and I believe it's at the Mount of Olives. Jesus said, as you have seen me go in the same manner, I'll come again. So I just believe Jesus. It's going to be in that region. He'll come again. That begins what I believe is to be the day of the Lord, judgment, um, new heavens and new earth. So I probably, not probably, I'm not one that subscribes to a like the seven-year period in which There is, again, a literal, like, national kingdom in which 
the Jews are the focus. Some do. I don't think that's a sin to disagree on that. But I see us as in the some point the tribulation. I think Christians will go through that. We must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation, the Bible says. Again, same verses can be seen differently. I'm saying, saying to you, my understanding of the covenant being fulfilled does not negate the fact that at some point in the future, Christ will return, will return to that geographical region. That doesn't negate that. And so all that to say this, it is my personal opinion that a view that sees the Abrahamic covenant as being fulfilled in Christ is the simplest, clearest, and cleanest way to not only make sense of the overarching narrative of the Bible, it's the simplest, clearest, and cleanest way to see history through the Bible and to make sense of what's happening in the Middle East right now. Other systems see the Bible through history, and I would rather see history through the Bible. So you have to make exceptions and allowances and adjustments to some degree with any view you adopt. I want to encourage you to have the courage to analyze and examine where you land on some of these things, run them through the filter of Scripture, let the Word do the work so that your inconsistencies or conflicts or your questions have the most available answers. I don't know if there's any perfectly man-made system. I like a chart. I mean, I like these timelines probably a lot cleaner than the charts I saw growing up, to be frank with you. Maybe that chart's right. I don't know. I tend to think the timeline that's of the covenant seems to be a little cleaner and crisper it seems to really fall in line with what we know as Occam's razor. You know what that is, right? It's the kind of a principle that says the simplest explanation is usually the right explanation. So let's not make this harder than it is. And I just want to encourage you to consider what's helped me make sense of over there and to develop language and focus that has been very helpful. And that is to see Christ as the centerpiece and the fulfillment of the covenant, and to realize that's a dangerous, messy geopolitical situation. It has some prophetic ramifications, but not near as many as it does missional opportunities. With that in mind, let's see if we can tackle some perplexities without me getting fired. No, I'm kidding you about that. And just see if we can help you as well. And again, I think we can disagree graciously uh, I would ask that it be a question, maybe not a statement. Sometimes we ask questions to make a statement. If you have an honest question, that'd be good to hear. And so uh, the question place is over here. Is that right, Taylor? And I might need to call on Travis to help me here. Travis, you want to join me on the platform? We'll grab a mic. And uh, we're your primary teaching pastors. All of our elders can teach. They graciously allow us to do most of it. So I'll have Travis join me, and then we'll just see if we can tackle any questions. It might just be with saying, you know, that's a good point. I don't know, or whatever. I'm going to offer help where we can. And some may have been texted in. I did log in, Tanner, but I'm not sure if I've... Um... Do you have them in front of you? Okay. We'll just let you either read them or show them. Oh, you got them. Oh, okay. Well, we'll start with you. I just get to ask the questions. I've easy and that's not true. <laughs> I'm roping you in today. 
Uh, there are two of them. I'll just read them in order. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So this is the first time you're seeing these. It is. That's okay. I'm not worried about that. They're great questions. Uh, first one is, is there anything biblical to suggest that we must protect Jewish people or treat them with a higher standard than, say, Arabs? Or that we as Christians or they as Jews should be in ownership of Zion? Okay, that last question is a little tricky for me. I'm going to defer on that one for now. I'm going to say to the first one, I, I think we treat all people as made in the image of God. Um, yeah, I'm just going to be good with that. You know, I told the men yesterday that uh, Casper Ten Boom, who was Corey Ten Boom's father, when they came to cart his daughters off, they offered him a chance to not go to prison if he would not take any more Jews in and protect them. He was in the Netherlands. He was a Dutch Christian. He said, if someone knocks on my door tomorrow, I'm going to help them. And then he didn't qualify it with a race or an ethnicity. And I'm not a big fan of the word race. I think we're all the human race. We have different ethnicities. But he didn't qualify it at all. He said, I'm going to help those in need. So I would say to the first one, I don't know of anything biblical to suggest we must protect Jewish people above others or with a higher standard. I don't think that's biblical, no. Uh, or that we as Christians or they as Jews should be in ownership of Zion. So that's a really good question. There are some systems of thought that would say they do have a divine right to the land. So I think that would be, they would say Jews would own Zion. I would like to, those are things I don't know about. If it's, is it an ethnic Jew? Is it the actual citizen of Israel? Like what if someone's like Matt, since he's an Israeli, could he say, well, actually, I have a right to the land, even though that promise wasn't made to a Palestinian who's an Israeli citizen, it was made to an ethnic Jew. Is it made to ethnic Jews over the world? And so I'm not going to speak for them because I don't want to, I'm not, I have no way want to disparage those who don't see it the way I do. I don't want to ever do that. I just don't know how to answer the second one. My sense is that God will settle that when he returns. I do think that part of the world is special in God's economy for some reason. He's returning there. He will set the new heavens and new earth in Jerusalem. That's all going to be part of the kingdom when it's consummated. So there's something special about it. Um, I tend to think the land's been, part of the promise has been fulfilled. So I don't think there's a divine right to the land in the current earthly situation. I think there is going to be a replacement um, at some point where, where that land will be special again. I just don't know how that's going to happen. And maybe that's where those charts, maybe that's the right way. I don't know. I don't see it that way. But So I'm going to defer on the second part for now. Let's go to, you want to add to that, question yeah. asker? <laughs> Do you want to take questions from the floor? Is it a question? Would you like to come up? Is it a question, Sarah? Great. Sure. Can you come to the mic so we can get this on the audio? We are using this for later. Yeah, if you have a question, you can come on up to this mic right here. And this here. are our cameras on this one, too, so you'll yep. be audible and visible, Sarah. Good news, right? Let's get this mic on. In relationship to that question, okay. why do you think throughout the history of the world, and even now, among some, not all, that there is an actual hatred 
for Jewish people, and I think that's why some Israelis don't want to be identified as mm. Jewish. But, so why do you think there is that hatred? So I guess the best answer is I don't know. I would tie it to something, though. I'm going to go see them. Sure. I'm going to tie it to something. I believe that there's been a partial hardening of Israel, as I think it's Romans 11. Is that right, Travis? It may be that the partial hardening of Israel ties into perhaps the amount of persecution or opposition they receive or hatred they receive. I don't know that. I, that's probably just a guess on my part. Yeah. So I don't know the answer to that, Sarah. Yeah, they're probably too brief of answers. But yeah, I think there's some punishment there. I think there's some jealousy from other nations that have played into that for sure. So I think it's a, a little bit of a combination of both of those, yeah. the why they've been hated for so long. You ready for another question? Uh, I guess so, yeah. yeah we are ready, me and you. Right. Yep. Does FFC subscribe to a covenant or dispensational theology? So we're not going to land in either camp. We would say um, some people hold more elements of one than the other. Some are maybe a hybrid. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that there are aspects in which we're covenant. There are probably aspects in which we're dispensational. In the sense, you could say, well, really, we, ha we, we might see two dispensations. There's an older one and there's a newer one. You could say that. So I know dispensations, like we do believe in a rapture. We believe in a rapture. So I don't know that we would say either one of those. I wouldn't want to pin those on our sign as this is the kind of church we are. Is that fair to say? What would you say to that? Yeah, a teaching membership class, again, the documents that we point our people to are our core, doctrine, our core doctrines, our position papers, and our, the, our faith and message. So if you want to know where we land, look at those. Do we have opinions? Absolutely. If you want to see where we land, Look at those. And the, uh, our faith and message is not specifically dispensational or, or a covenant the theology. Yeah. It's neither. So I'll give you a good book that compares the two. And then I'll share with you a very transparent fence I was given. The book that I'd recommend that compares these two very factually, and I think in a helpful way, is called Identifying the Seed. I will be frank with you. A covenant guy wrote it. But I've heard from several dispensationalists and I've heard from other people that it is a pretty good comparison of the two strains of thought, okay? Here's the real uh, transparent comment. When I was reviewing with the elders kind of what my goal was, what I wanted to share, they asked me, they said, Todd, you know, don't pin people down into one of these categories, don't pick a fight. Don't start a fire over dispensationalism or covenant. I said, that's not my goal. So this interesting. This question came up. Someone's trying to, you know, probably ask us like, do you, and a lot of this is, uh, not all of it, but a lot of these are about end times. And we have taken a clear stance that that's probably a second tier issue, an open-handed issue where we can have really honest disagreement and never have to separate. But they are in these categories, you know, um, there are other differences in them in regards to how God works salvifically, so I'd be aware of that as well. But no, we wouldn't land as one of these. Mm -mm. Yeah. Okay, final one that I have. Two more? I'm missing one. I'll read. Do you want to go to the next one? 
since you have them up here, I'll just read them off the screen. If the covenant is fulfilled, what do you do with Genesis 17:8 that says, "I will give you the entire land of Canaan, and it will be their possession forever"? Uh, that's a great verse. Thanks for asking. It's a great question. No, seriously, I think that fulfilled and, for, and uh, forever don't negate each other. Here's why. I believe it's in Exodus 19 that the Abrahamic covenant is somewhat, or at least these elements are repeated in regards to the Mosaic covenant. And God tells the people of Israel, if you disobey, then I will do these things called the blessings and cursings. And many of them are related to the land. So I would say to you, and you can disagree with this. There was a dispossession of it later due to disobedience regarding the Mosaic covenant. But it was fulfilled through Joshua at some point to the Abrahamic covenant. And I think God will fulfill it again in some way to his people, which I think is the church. And I think that would be in the new heavens and new earth. I think that part forever still stands. I think God will deliver to his people everything he promised in Christ. Again, some can disagree with that. They would say we're spiritualizing. Some would say, no, we're more literal. Um, but I don't think forever and fulfilled negate each other. What happened once in a point in time and was completed actually then says it happened, it's good. It will always be forever good. That, was, that actually happened. It was dispossessed because of disobedience. God will once again at some point, I think when he comes again and consummates the kingdom, set that up for his chosen people, and it will again last. At that point, it will last forever eternally. That's how I see it. It's an answer to the question. You may not like the answer, but it's an answer. How would you answer that, Travis? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I thought you answered it very well. Oh, uh, good. I love to hear that. No. The, <laughs> so give some more on that. Um, yeah, I, I do think we many times think on, on earth in our lifetime, in our children's lifetime. We think the here and now. I think we forget of the promises for forever, which is the new heavens and new earth. And so to say that Christ will fulfill his promise forever in the new heavens and new earth, I think is a, is a point we regularly forget. I think at the end of Revelation just reminds us like, like Lord come quickly, like uh, fulfill all, all things, like restore all things, make everything new. That was his prayer in the end of Revelation. So we should pray that same way. Is there another question there or here or live? Oh, okay. Let me take this one, and I'll ask you. Oh, man, is it 4 o'clock? <laughs> How do you interpret Ezekiel 37 to 39, the prophecy of Gog and Magog coming against Israel, and Israel being miraculously saved by God? Has it been fulfilled, or how will it be fulfilled? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I answered the question. Isn't that fair? It's a fair answer. I yeah. I I don't have a great answer for this one. I okay. Need would need to study. Well, let, let me see if I can provide a little bit of insight. I kind of anticipated this one. Made some notes because there are prominent Old Testament passages that speak of this same kind of theme, and I think they're great. I'm so glad for this question. And someone's thinking like, what about these verses? Great. I think Ezekiel 34, 38 to 39. I believe 34 is about the coming of the kingdom with Jesus. 
Maybe even there's a dual vision there of the consummation of the kingdom when Christ comes at the day of the Lord. I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39, they seem to sound a lot like Acts 2 and Joel. So if you read them, you're going to find similar language when Peter said, it is the last days and what you're seeing is the pouring out of the Spirit of God on all peoples. So could it be that what we think is way out there to the prophets was actually the coming of Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom, which would lean into saying, maybe he really is the fulfillment of everything God had promised. It's just some food for thought. I think it's very reasonable to see the coming of Christ in that language and in those chapters, as well as Daniel 9 to 12, Zechariah 12 to 14. There's probably dual like mountaintops. A prophet sees one, the coming of Christ, and he sees something else. Maybe the second coming of Christ and the consummation of what he inaugurated, as well as Matthew 24 and 25. And I would love to walk through that chapter, maybe on another Sunday seminar, to show you how really historically a lot of this has occurred and Christ really fulfills a lot of it. So I love this question. I would encourage you not to assume that Gog and Magog means some, you know, Russian country way out in the future. It may have actually meant what it said then in the historical moment. We can disagree on that. Just, I would give it thought and consideration. So does that help? Any more questions? Again, I don't want to disparage, and I'm not trying to pick a fight. I just want to brain to you. Here, here's why, and if that's all the questions, I'll just wrap up with this one last thing. Stay up here, Travis, with me, because I, I might need your, to shield me, buddy. <laughs> hey, here's why I brought this to you today. And, and I meant this when I said it at the beginning. Even Kent and I and Matt probably have some disagreement on some of this. But I love the way these guys, and Travis does this for me. We, man, there's a, um, a sharpening when I'm with them to be more missional. Uh, and to think through what we're saying and how we're saying it so that we don't unintentionally complicate or alienate. And as I just thought through some things, I, I did, I find personally more motivation when there's greater simplicity. And so as I reviewed some of my own thoughts about the Middle East and the crisis, I did become more convinced that Christ is the centerpiece of all of God's activity. And that God's chosen people were a national group of ethnic Jews. But his plan all along was to merge that with those Gentiles who would believe. And that now there is a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a chosen people. That's what Peter calls the church. And we're to proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into light. Those are Peter's words. So I just find that when it's simple, man, I'm more motivated to do what God asks us to do, stay on mission for him. And so I just felt urged by that small group sabotage to try to provide that same for you. This is kind of how that small group went. It was a little shorter. But they just asked questions. I just gave them what I thought, and they, they, uh, they didn't stone me. So I thought, well, maybe our church could benefit if I just honestly shared how I find simplicity in this situation and it helps me stay on mission because that's what I think we both, our elders, all of our leadership desire for our church. Let's not be distracted politically or culturally 
Let's live missionally. I know that's your heart. No matter where you land on some of these views, that's your heart or you wouldn't even be here. So can we commit to making, uh, to developing devoted followers our end game still? Amen. Travis, won't you pray for us and we'll dismiss our sheet. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much, first of all, for your love for us. Thank you that we can call you Father. It's because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, uh, on our behalf, in our place, uh, that we can even know you and we can talk to you and you hear our prayers. And so we're so grateful uh, that you love us. You've chosen us, Father. Thank you for that. And thank you for the burden on our heart to get the gospel to the ends of the world. I thank you that your last words to your disciples is our first priority, that we want to be declarers of the good news of gospel, of the gospel. So help us to do that. Help us to be passionate about that first and foremost. And Father, we thank you for your word. It is complicated. It is big. It is robust. There's so much in it. I pray that we would have a humble posture of a student as we sit in it, read it daily, meditate on it, and that we would trust you and the Holy Spirit that, to enlighten us and help us understand and illuminate to us the truths of Scripture. Help us to not get bogged down and, and, and frustrated. Help us not to fight especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who know you and love you. I pray that unity and love would rule this church, Father. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who are here with me today. Uh, Father, I pray that the gospel would go forward. Uh, use us in that regard. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.